Welcome to I Dare You, a series through the book of Daniel with Skip Heitzig. As you turn to Daniel chapter 12, there's two other passages I'd really like you to have ready to look at. I don't like to turn to many passages on a weekend services because of the time constraints, but two that will fit perfectly into what we happen to be dealing with, and that is Matthew chapter 24, which is Jesus' own words about the last days, Matthew 24, and then the book of Revelation. You can never read Daniel without Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. So Daniel 12, Matthew 24, and Revelation chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We are glad, Lord, because our gladness rests in you personally. You have made us glad. You have given us a glad countenance. And with it, we have worshipped you. And now as we continue to worship you by listening to you and what message you would have for us for this week, for strength for our lives, I pray like the message was intended to convey to Daniel, we would have hope. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you've flown internationally, you know that one leg of a journey depends on the other leg, so that if, if one flight becomes delayed, then you may have canceled flights and not make your destination uh, for a couple days. That's always a problem, and uh, it was a problem I faced on my first leg out of Albuquerque going to Beirut. We pulled out of the gate, and we just sort of sat on the tarmac for a while and sat there, and I knew something was up. Sure enough, pilot gets on the intercom. He says, ladies and gentlemen, there's some little problem that we have. It's with emergency lights or landing or something. Now, that's, that's pretty significant, so... He said, uh, we're going to pull back and try to get this thing figured out and get things replaced, etc. So <clears throat> I thought, well, I'm going to be delayed for the Houston, the Frankfurt, the Beirut. And, um, you know, I always want to shoot up a prayer right then. And so I prayed and we're pulling back to the gate and he gets back on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I don't know what happened, but it reset and uh, <laughs> we're good to go. So we we took off and, and made all the connections. But as we were sitting there, I was thinking of another flight that was delayed, and the pilot got on that intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you that um, our thermal expander valve in engine number two, we have a warning light, and I will not fly this airplane until we get that part replaced, so we got to take you back to the gate, and he disembarked all the passengers, they waited for only 20 minutes, however, all got back aboard, and the plane took off. Well, while it is flying... One of the passengers said to a steward or a stewardess, Boy, that was quick. You must have had a thermal expander valve close at hand to be able to fix it that quick. And she said, No way. There's not one of those things for a thousand miles from here. We got us a new pilot. (laughs) Well, when you're flying in the air and you hear that, That's an epiphanal moment. And you walk away from that going, "Uh uh-oh, we could be in big trouble. 
Well, that is sort of the moment that Daniel has in the section of Scripture that we're reading. The 70 years of Israel's captivity is over. It's time for them to go back and rebuild. They go back. But not all of them go back. In fact, most of them don't go back. In fact, most of the Israelites stayed in Babylon. They didn't have any motivation at all to rebuild. And this broke Daniel's heart and he was upset. And he fasted and he mourned and he prayed. And while he was praying, an angel from heaven came and gave him a revelation. And that's chapters 10, 11, and 12. And it says, basically, Daniel, I've got some bad news for you. The 70 years of captivity was just the beginning of sorrows. It's going to get far worse than this. There's going to be generation after generation after generation of oppressors who will come and your people will suffer throughout their coming history, even to the very end of days when another ruler is going to come, whom we know as the Antichrist. And it will be really bad at that time. That's the message he gets. It's pretty hopeless until now. Now in chapter 12, the light shines through the darkness, through the hopeless years of foretold, foretold history. It's as if uh, when the night becomes the blackest, the light becomes the brightest right afterwards. And so it is with world history. Just when things are getting to the very worst, God will then offer His very best. And hope arises in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel, God's going to purify your people. He'll protect your people. He'll resurrect your people, and He's going to reward your people. That's the message of these three verses. This then is a message of hope for Daniel, because it's been hopeless up to this point. Hope is one of the three great necessities of life. Paul spoke of faith, hope, and love. We can't live without hope. It's been well said that mankind can go about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only about one second without hope. And those people who study suicide will tell you that people will take their lives not because of the enormous problems in their present situation, but simply because they see no way out of their present situation. They see no future. They have no hope. They're hopeless. And Daniel in chapter 10 and chapter 11 has had a series of messages from this angelic visitor who tells him about war and suffering and pain and heartache. One continuous vision. Until here he sees hope. There's four words that are written in your worship folder this morning. Four words that describe that future time. And 
I want you to see these four words as four rungs on a ladder. Let's build a ladder today. Let's call it the ladder of hope. And it has four rungs. And it's going to go from the basement to where it was really bad to where it really gets good. Those four words are tribulation, preservation, resurrection, and remuneration. Those are the four words that describe these three verses. So let's begin with the first, the worst, tribulation. Look at verse 1. At that time, stop. Just consider that phrase, at that time. Now when you read a phrase like that, at that time, what do you ask? Very good. At what time? And so here's where I need to jog your memory and have you reach back a couple of weeks where we left off in chapter 11. That's the time he's dealing with. Remember, it's one continuous vision. And the angelic messenger foretells the time when Israel will be oppressed in the coming few hundred years, but then reaches to the very end of history where it talks about in that section of chapter 11, the time of the end. And it describes the Antichrist, this last bad ruler who's going to come and oppress the Jews. At that time, when the Antichrist ascends to power, at the time when he walks into the temple and desecrates it, at the time where he usurps authority and consumes all religions of the world, at the time where there's massive war that culminates in the battle of Armageddon, at that time, hope will dawn, hope will arise. The night gets darker and darker and darker just before the dawn. And then there's hope. So it says, at that time, Now it describes that time, look also in verse 1, in the second sentence, and there shall be a time of trouble, now watch this description, such as never was since there was a nation, even into that time. Get the point? This is going to be so bad that no other time period in history would be able to compare with with how bad it's going to be. It's going to be bad for the world, but it's going to be especially bad for the Jews, because that's the context of these three chapters, the Jewish people. If you think about it, Israel has suffered much in its history. It has suffered by the hands of the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, um, the Herods, the Ahasuerus, the Alexanders, the Hitlers. They have suffered, suffered, suffered. But that's nothing in compared to what they will suffer in that final period of history that we're dealing with here. I have a book in my library, and it's fun to pull it down from time to time. It's a series of research polls that took place in this country. And it's interesting. It was written right at the the turnover around the year 2000 when we were approaching the the new millennium, the new century. And um, one little paragraph, and it says this. Quote, have you noticed that most books and movies about the future portray a world that you wouldn't want to live in? More than half the people we talk to honestly believe that the 21st century will be dirtier, harsher, harder, grimier, and gloomier than the world of today. Close quote. Well, here's what this angel would want Daniel and consequently us to know. No author or movie maker can portray how bad it's going to get. All we can say is 
There's never been a time ever in history like it. Now, when we read this, this should turn a little light on in our minds because Jesus said something pretty identical to this. That's where we turn to Matthew chapter 24. So let's look at that. Matthew 24, look at verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And you might think, oh, come on, we've always had that stuff. Read the next verse. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Go down to verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now he's given instructions to people who are living locally in Jerusalem. Let him who is on the housetops not go down and take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It says the same thing Daniel says. An unprecedented time of pain, tribulation, is coming upon this world. Now this time period goes under several titles in the Bible. 26 times it's called the day of the Lord. Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 34 call it the indignation. Isaiah 63 calls it the day of God's vengeance. Revelation chapter 6, it's called the great day of His wrath. Also in Revelation 6, the day of the wrath of the Lamb. So it sounds like an oxymoron. The wrath of the Lamb. Have you ever seen a wrathful lamb? Lambo, I like to call it. Now, in hearing what I just said and what the angel said to Daniel and what Jesus said, you might be asking, well, how bad can it get? I mean, we've had bad times in history before. I mean, we've had the Holocaust and World War I and World War II and et cetera, et cetera. We have. How bad can it get? I'm glad you asked. The details of this last period of time are outlined in the book of Revelation. Essentially, that's what the book's about. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Here's just a summary of that. War. Famine. Again, you say, we've always had that, but keep listening. 25% of the world killed. Heavenly bodies falling out of the heaven toward the earth. One-third of the earth destroyed. One-third of the seas destroyed. One-third of all the freshwater sources on earth eliminated. The release of hell's demons to overrun the earth. The Antichrist and his armies coming and slaughtering millions. Sores breaking out on people. Sunlight scorching people, burning them to death, and darkness covering the earth. Now that goes on and on and on from chapter 6 through chapter 19. That's how bad it can get. But one of the special targets of this coming leader, this Antichrist, will be the Jewish people. That's why Jesus in Matthew 24 gives a special address to Jews. Let him who reads understand. If you are living in Jerusalem... 
And you see this happening, the Antichrist going into the rebuilt temple and desecrating it and calling himself God. Get out of town now. Don't get your iPod, don't get your iPhone, leave and flee to the mountains. That's why Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. You've heard that phrase? The time of Jacob's trouble, that's Israel's trouble. They will really, really be troubled during that time. That comes out of Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. So, number one, the rung on the ladder, number one, tribulation. You go, that doesn't sound like a lot of hope. Well, hang on, we're climbing the ladder. The second rung of this ladder of hope is preservation. That's really the message of verse one. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered. It's the first message of hope Daniel has heard in chapters 10, 11, and now in chapter 12. Your people will be delivered. And everyone who is found written in the book. Now, who is this Michael? Well, Michael is sort of like the angelic version of a superhero. He is sort of like, um, if you could put Iron Man and Batman and Superman and the Wolverine all together in one package, only for real, that is Michael. He's called here the Great Prince. The Great Prince in verse 1. In chapter 10, he was called the Prince of your people or one of the chief princes. The Hebrew word for prince is sar and it denotes a military commander like a general. Jude chapter 9, he is called Michael the archangel, perhaps the greatest angel ever created, with a special task of defending God's covenant people, the Jews. So here's the message. When the times become the worst times, when the night becomes the darkest night, when it's the very worst period of existence for the nation of Israel, Michael, your prince, your military commander, will come in to rescue. I want to give you a little note here at this point. I want you to notice something. We have a picture of Michael, a created angel, going to war against Satan and his forces. It is not a, a picture of God fighting the devil. And a lot of Christians think that. And I think one of the biggest lies Satan wants to perpetrate is that he is the opposite of God. He is not. Sometimes we think, and over in this corner is God, and he's sweating it out as he's fighting the devil. Are you kidding? Satan can't go one round with the champ. I mean, it's like putting Justin Bieber against Bruce Willis or something. I mean, you can, you can pick uh, whoever you want, but it's like, what? Not even close. Satan is a created being. Michael is a created being. And they're going at it. He will stand up. Question. How will Michael stand up? Well, it seems, and this is where I have to just shorten it for you. And all the materials available, you can get it uh, free of charge on the website in the book of Revelation. It seems that during the tribulation period, all of hell's forces will be unleashed on the earth with the sole purpose to obliterate the nation of Israel. 
Now look at Revelation chapter 12. This is where that comes in. Revelation 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who is the woman? It's sort of an unfair question because people will answer it differently. The Catholic Church says it's Mary. They even have motif that shows this. That would be wrong, and I'll show you why in a moment. Some people say this is a picture of the church, the woman. Well, the reason it can't be the church is because the New Testament calls the church the virgin bride of Christ, and here this woman is pregnant. And if that's the case, church has got big problems. Now, I believe it can only be one thing, and I'll show you why. This is a picture of the nation of Israel. The only other time in the Bible we have this imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars like this is back in Genesis 37, when little Joseph had a dream. Remember the dream he had? He got in trouble. He said, hey, you guys, tells his brothers, his mom and dad, I had a dream last night. Eleven stars, the sun and the moon all bow down to me, my star. Isn't that a cool dream I had? You go, yeah, let's like sell you as a slave somewhere. In fact, Jacob, his dad, interpreted the meaning of that dream. That speaks of us, the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and the father and the mother. It's a picture of Israel. Say, why is Israel portrayed as a woman? She was often portrayed as a woman in the Old Testament. The wife of Jehovah called a woman many occasions. So it's fair to say, since the only other comparison is that text of Scripture that unlocks its meaning, that it's a picture of Israel. And you'll see why that's appropriate. Verse 3, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns or diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who might that child be? My Bible has a capital C for child, rightly interpreting this to mean Christ. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations. Now we know it is Jesus with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. That would be the ascension. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. That they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. So Jesus ascends into heaven. The male child, the woman is left. And during the tribulation... Satan and the beast will persecute the woman relentlessly, trying to destroy Israel. Now, Satan's always wanted that. This is not like new news. He never wanted the Messiah to begin with. That's the whole reason Bethlehem happened when Herod slaughtered all the baby boys. Kill the Messiah. That's what Satan had in mind when he inspired him. Look at verse 7. Here it is. This is what I want to show you. And war broke out in heaven... Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, 
that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Once the demons are cast out on the earth, they seek to overrun the earth and seek to destroy Israel. And Michael comes. And it tells us in Revelation 12, verse 1, your people shall be delivered. I just got to imagine what this sounded like to Daniel, right? He's been in chapter 10 and 11 hearing, this guy's coming and that guy's coming and we're going to get killed. And that's going to happen. It's bad news, bad news. Till all of a sudden, hey, good news, dude. There's coming a day when Michael's going to stand up at the very worst of times and your people will be delivered. That's the message of preservation. Question. Why such hatred against the Jews? Why Israel? Why destroy Israel of all the nations in the world to obliterate why the Jews? Well, let me give you a premise. If God's plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, required the existence of a nation and the continuance of that nation, if you could destroy that nation, you can thwart God's plan. One nation God selected out of all the people on the earth to give prophets to, to give his word of revelation, the scriptures to, and to send the Messiah through. That's the Jewish nation. If we can obliterate the Jewish nation, we can thwart God's plan. That's the reason that Cain killed Abel back in Genesis, because the thought that Abel might be the promised seed. It's the reason Pharaoh wanted to kill all the male Hebrew children born in Egypt. It's the reason Saul tried to kill David. The Messiah would come through the lineage of King David. It's the reason Herod killed all those babies in Bethlehem. It's the reason Satan said to Jesus, jump down, jump down. Any idea or way possible to eliminate God's promise of salvation through the Jewish people. He has tried. And by the way, it's the reason why Sheikh Assad Tamimi from the Islamic Jihad said, and I quote, the killing of the Jews will continue killing, killing, killing in God's name until they vanish. Close quote. You see, folks, there's prejudice and then there's prejudice. And anti-Semitism isn't just your run-of-the-mill racism or prejudice. It's demonically inspired by the enemy of God and the enemy of your soul who wants to eliminate God's plan of enacting his salvation and his future kingdom through this nation. So that's why this is hopeful for Daniel. Because there's tribulation and it's going to be an unparalleled time, but there's preservation. Your people will be delivered. Third, rung on the ladder of hope is resurrection. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. See, the hope is rising. Not only, Daniel, will your people be preserved, they're going to live again. There's going to be a resurrection. Now, something you need to know about resurrection. When the Bible speaks of resurrection... It's always speaking of the physical body. It's not a spiritual resurrection. It's not just using a metaphor. It always speaks of the physical body being brought back to life. And it was always the hope of Israel. 
As far back as the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, Job said in chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, that's physical death, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God. That's resurrection. The only reason Abraham thought, I can sacrifice my son Isaac, according to Hebrews 12, is he believed God could raise him from the dead. Hope of resurrection. Now, there's three great facts of life. If you don't know them yet, you need to know them now. Number one, everybody dies. Number two, everybody gets evaluated. That's judgment. Number three, everybody, everybody gets resurrected. Rich, poor, young, old, famous, obscure. Everybody in history so far has died. I can think of only two exceptions. I'll let you have fun with those and figure out who that is. Death is mentioned 394 times in the Bible. Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, To everything there is a season, a purpose for everything under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. Two people die every second. That's why one undertaker creatively signs all of his letters, Eventually yours. Kind of creepy, huh? Now, listen to the words of Jesus and how close they sound to the words of Daniel 12. This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 5. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of of condemnation. Make no mistake, every human being has eternal life. That is, they will live forever. The big question is where? And when the Bible speaks about eternal or everlasting life, it often speaks of just living in God's presence for those who are saved. But everyone will continue forever because everyone has a soul and the soul is eternal. There's two possibilities, Daniel says. Everlasting shame and contempt or everlasting life. Resurrection. (laughs) Listen, there's a hope in that for us. Because the older I get, the older we get, the more wrinkles we get, the more we groan as we get older. You know, I was on this trip with my buddy and I, I... pick stuff up and I'd sigh and, I, and he'd say, y- you, you're like groaning a lot more than you used to. <laughs> oh. And he, he, he noticed that a couple of times. said, dude, it's biblical. We who are in these bodies, Paul wrote, earnestly groan, desiring to be delivered and clothed with our heavenly habitation. So cool it. <laughs> I'll groan for the glory. Now, for um, New Testament believers, do you know when our resurrection will take place? Our physical resurrection? Any guesses? The rapture of the church. At the rapture of the church, those who are dead in Christ shall what? Rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, 1 Thessalonians 4, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. 
The church was not in the first 69 weeks of Daniel. They certainly won't be in the 70th week of Daniel or that tribulation period. Our resurrection happens at the rapture of the church. Then there'll be a seven-year period of tribulation at the end of which, I believe, Old Testament saints will be resurrected along with tribulation believers. All of that, even though it's in phases, constitutes the first resurrection or the resurrection unto life. Now, if you want to get chronological... Go and read, not now, but later, Revelation chapter 20, which says after the first resurrection will be a thousand years. And after the thousand years, a second resurrection where unbelievers are resurrected in their physical bodies and stand before God to be judged. So no matter how long you live here, you might live, make, make it over a hundred, but that's nothing compared to eternity. You'll live gazillions of years in eternity. This is just the warm-up act. This is the dress rehearsal for the real show. So that's what the angel is getting Daniel to see. Tribulation, yes. Worst period of time in history. But preservation, your people will be delivered. Not only that, there'll be resurrection. For those whose names are written in the book of life, it gets better. You'll live forever. Here's the fourth rung on the ladder of hope. It even gets better than resurrection. It's called remuneration. Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now talk about hope. Resurrection is even the end of it. Rewards come. The ability to reflect God's glory to some capacity. I heard of a preacher who died and he went to heaven. When he got into the gates of heaven, he looked around and he noticed that there was a New York taxi cab driver who also was in heaven. What bothered the preacher is the, the, the cab driver had a higher position of authority in heaven than he did. So he went to Peter and said, oh, Peter, like, what's up with this? I mean, I, I like gave my whole life to this enterprise and the cab driver has a higher place in heaven. And Peter said, slow down, buckaroo. We... we uh, We reward here in heaven based upon results. You see, whenever you would preach, a lot of people fell asleep. But anybody who got in that guy's cab stayed awake and prayed the whole time. Well, I want to be fair to the text because I believe that a text taken out of context becomes a pretext. And so the context here would seem to indicate that it has primary reference to those Jewish evangelists during the tribulation period, which Revelation talks about. 144,000 are sealed. They seem to have a great witness because in chapter 7 of Revelation, John sees a multitude of non-Jews, Gentiles. He can't even count them all. The question is, where do they come from? Where do all those saved Gentiles come from? From the witness of the 144,000 who turn many to righteousness. I think that's primarily the reference. However, let's broaden it out because it's a principle. The wisest people in the world are saved people. Fools are unbelievers. That's how the Bible describes a fool. A fool isn't a guy who flunked out of third grade. It's a guy who rejects Christ. The fool has said in his heart, no God. A wise person receives Christ. If you're a saved person... You'll shine forever. If you're a witnessing saved person and you've given your life to bring many to righteousness, 
seems like you're going to shine a little bit brighter. Look at the end of verse 3. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, I hope it's not news to you. I hope it's not new to you that um, this is a reality. We're going to be rewarded. You get saved completely by grace. You believe it's all by faith. And you get saved. You get brought into the kingdom by faith. However, your rewards in eternity will get doled out based upon your faithfulness on earth. That's why Paul said, run this race of life like you're trying to obtain the prize. Because one day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive the things that were done in our bodies, whether good or bad. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do you store up treasures in heaven? Yeah, there's heaven, but then there's treasures in heaven. And you can be storing them up now. And that depends on your faithfulness here. Faithfulness of your own witness will determine your capacity to shine in eternity. Have you always wanted to be a star? You know, every time they interview a contestant like, like American Idol or The Voice or all these talent shows, that's the theme I hear in all of them. I was born to be a star. I guess you have to have that drive to even get on that contest. I'm a star. Wait about two years and ask somebody if they remember that guy that was on American Idol and they'll go, who? They don't even last that long. So if you want to be a star, make sure you shine in the right sky. In God's sky. Were you here when we had fireworks on the 4th of July? You know what the best part of the fireworks were? When they were done. And you look up and the smoke clears and you see those stars that have been up there long before the fireworks were even invented and will shine long after fireworks go. Well, if you want to plant something that will last a year, plant a flower. You want to plant something that will last a lifetime, plant a tree. You want to plant something that will last forever, plant the gospel in the heart of another human being and he'll shine. Well, Father, those are your stars. Your stars are those who turn many to righteousness. And they'll shine like the stars forever. And for Daniel, who has seen only and heard only about carnage and pain and suffering, all of which came true, as you would purge and make white your covenant people to be ready for the Messiah. That purging that will take place even throughout the end of days, what hope must have filled his heart as he realized there will come a day when they will be delivered and resurrected and rewarded. And we who are your people, Lord, we need that same kind of impetus to live in a fallen world. I pray, Lord, that we would not be content to be human stars in a short-lived sky, but eternal stars in your sky. Truly stars that will shine forever, emanating to some degree the physical blazing glory of Almighty God. 
What a great, hopeful thought that is. In Jesus' name, amen. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.